Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Habib, a weekly podcast featuring my conversations with countercultural figures and presenting complex philosophical, spiritual, and political ideas in an engaging and accessible way. Well, friends, let me start with a quote from the French philosopher and psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan, who said, There is no other good than the one that can pay the price of the access to desire. There is no other good than the one that can pay the price of the access to desire. There's a lot about this statement, which is like a lot of what Lacan said, a bit of a riddle. But here's some of that paying the price of access. <laughs> so our desires are not accessible to us. So we must lose something. We have to give something to meet them, to see them, to talk about them. This is at the core of this episode with Carmen Maria Machado, the author of In the Dream House, Her Body and Other Parties, and The Low, Low Woods. We talk about the access, the price, the desire itself, and more. I think what's really interesting to both of us, and this comes up quite a bit, is how desire functions. How is it somehow always ahead of us? It seems to appear and disappear in our lives like a friend or an enemy on the path in a fairy tale. Sometimes it shows up and it gives something to us that's useful later on, like a, a key or a sacred object or a stone that you need to solve a puzzle or a weapon. Sometimes it gives us a gift that leads us to being stuck, like the fairy market where someone accepts the gift of an apple, you know, from a goblin or some other strange fellow, and eats it, and wakes up a hundred years later, if they wake up at all. Sometimes it tricks us on the way to somewhere, like the wolf. I think sometimes also it has a strange shape that frightens us. Why should our desires be like this? How do they know us in a way before we know ourselves? How did my body know that I was attracted to men before I knew, consciously, for instance? I sometimes think about dreams in the same way. You know, um, how is it that when you're in a dream, you can be surprised by something or scared by something? Isn't it your own thoughts? How could that happen? How could it create such an intense feeling like that? And how does it do it without any sensory information? And why do we use recourse to sense words to talk about dreams? Like, I saw this in a dream, then I felt this, then this, this. But you didn't see it. You didn't feel it. Your body was lying there in bed. So what was happening? And how did it create something new and astonishing and shocking and frightening to you? And the same with writing fiction. The characters, when you write fiction, very often, for a lot of writers, are always a step ahead of you. And the story is always just out of reach. You uh, follow it as it unfolds. Horror, as Carmen and I discuss it, is one response or one sort of appearance of this out-of-reachness. The monster, the wound, the strange shape. But could horror also be a sign of mercy, a sign of wanting to throw oneself into the tumult of desire, which after all is, like I was saying, unknown and strange. Maybe horror is one of the ways to pay the price to access desire. 
This conversation with Carmen, it finds its proximity to a lot of things, (laughs) to creation, to danger, to repetition, and also to the abuse that Carmen writes about in her memoir in the dream house, and to the abuse I wrote about in my essay a long time ago. Um, If you ever did write anything about me, I'd want it to be about love. How do we talk about the desire and the horror in abusive relationships while still holding the abuser accountable? How do we make the necessary move of accountability without reducing the complicatedness of the encounter and the relationship and the feelings and the afterlife of the abuse and the afterlife of the person um, who abused us in our own imaginations? Again and again, Carmen and I touch on desire to talk about this. And we touch on storytelling as well. It's almost like we're knocking on wood to allow ourselves to go forward in a difficult and kind of scary conversation. What do we sacrifice to know our desires? What are the prices of following our desires? What uh, is the price of not giving way to them or of not giving ground to them? to uh, go back into some other Lacanian statements. If all that sounds dark and complex, well, it is. But this is also such a warm and friendly episode with lots of laughter and curiosity and affinity. Carmen and I actually grew up right in the same area of Pennsylvania. We were born in the same hospital. We're both people of color who in many places uh, are seen to be white. We both wrote narratives about abuse and we both have written horror narratives um, Carmen's book, uh, Her Body and Other Parties, is a book of strange, uh, intense, (laughs) sometimes horrific tales. And her graphic novel, The Low, Low Woods, is also, it's just a great horror graphic novel. My novel, Hawk Mountain, doesn't come out till next year, but um, that's fine. Read Carmen's stuff uh, (laughs) while while you're hanging out. If you haven't read it already, uh, it's fantastic. Um, So... (laughs) I'm so happy to share this episode with you and to go through all that complicatedness with you and with Carmen. Thank you for supporting the show if you do support it through Patreon. If you don't support it, I'm going to tell you the website address right now, patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. Please do support the show. I don't want to go on and on about it, but I don't have any sponsors other than the people that listen to the show, find value in it, find meaning in it, and decide that uh, sort of reciprocal act. Just, okay, I got this show. It's awesome. I like it. It does something for me. It inspires conversation in my own life, so I'm going to give back to it. Patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. That's how the show exists. Thank you so much for supporting it. If you do, thank you so much for listening, whether you support it or not but please do support it. All right, everybody, here we go. Hey, everybody. It's Against Everyone with Connor Habib. And finally, hello. I'm so enthusiastic (laughs) and excited and everything to finally talk with you, Carmen Maria Machado. Hello. Hi. Thank you for having me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So let's, okay, so let's just sort of get right in. Um, You know, I, I heard you once say this funny thing in an interview where you said, you know, before I 
before I really understood my sexuality, I used to think, well, if I don't ever get married to a guy, um, I'll get like, I'll, I'll just have like a garden and I'll cook and there'll be animals and I'll be with like this great group of women. And then you realize that actually you're sort of just talking about a lesbian commune. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and, and I, I thought about that, like it, it struck me because, you know, I always used to say before I understood that I was attracted to men, I used to think I had a longing for a brother. Like I had a brother who's 13 years older than me, wasn't in the house for most of the time when I was growing up, um, half brother. So I always used to think, I really want a brother. I want a brother. I want a brother. And then that started sort of changing. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to start with that because I think it's really a weird thing. Like the the formation of desire before you can actually really identify it and know what it is, but the desire is always there. So I want to kind of go back to those like pre, you know, those, those strangely forming like metamorphosing desires and start there and see if you remember more about that moment than just the image of the garden and the animals. Oh, that, yeah. Well, that, it's so funny because I feel like that moment, was so like when I had, and I, I kept a very detailed live journal when I was a teen. So I remember like writing about this and being like, you know, just like really invested in this sort of scene of domestic bliss that for some reason men never factored into in any way, shape or form. Um, and yeah. And I think that there were like, even, yeah, even before that there was sort of, there was like pre, yeah, like pre-desire or pre-articulation of desire language. So like I had, like a, a really good friend in one of my English classes in high school. And I remember thinking like, God, I just want to, I just want us to like skip school and just like <laughs> go talk. She's got so many freckles. Like I, I, you know, and I, I just <laughs> these, like thoughts that like, obviously in retrospect, like I wanted to kiss her. Like, I just want to, you know, like, and when I look back on it now, I'm like, Oh, it's so clear. But it's funny how, like, even if you don't give young queer people like language to articulate, what they're experiencing, like they still get there in some capacity. Like they're still like, they're like, there's something that I want. There's a sense of like dissatisfaction or like a need that's not being met. And I don't, mm -hmm. because I don't have like the cultural language, you know, where it's like, everyone's asking you about like your boyfriend or whatever, like, you know, everyone's like asking you the language, mm -hmm. the things that would give you that language. You're just able to like, you're still kind of like fumbling toward it in some strange way. So yes, yeah, I feel like there's a lot of like, I love my friends. I want to play games. Like, I want to, like, I remember, like, playing mommy and daddy with, like, a friend when I was, like, really young, like, maybe third grade or fourth grade. And, like, again, like, all this, like, very, like, pre-sexual stuff, but that felt really, it was, yeah, it was, like, me, like, moving toward a desire that I, like, had no way of of saying. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I remember, like, uh, but it's so interesting, isn't it? Like, it's so strange how desire like for me, it's just an exciting thing to think about how desire is like finding its shape, but is there even before it finds its shape. Like I remember like, so before, <clears throat> like before I really went, like I would, I masturbated before I went through puberty and I would just do it as this thing that made my body feel a certain way. I didn't ever imagine anything. Like I yeah. never brought that, you know, coupling of the imagined thing. And then I, I remember um, staying at, I wrote a short essay about this years ago, but I remember staying at this um, condominium with my, in at Ocean City, Maryland. <laughs> so, and by the way, for people who don't know, Carmen and I, 
grew up in this same exact area. In fact, we were talking about it before the show started. We were born in the same hospital. Um, and so, but so anyway, so it, in where we grew up, there was almost like a, there's a moratorium on even really sort of imagining queer things, I would say, much less speaking about them. So when you say that the language wasn't present, like the images were also somewhat prohibited. Um, I mean, it might have changed a bit between when I was growing up and when you were, but because you're younger than me. But when so we went to Ocean City, Maryland, and it was me and my mom, my sister, my stepdad my stepbrother and my stepbrother's friend. Okay. And so my stepbrother and my stepbrother's friend were like insanely erotic to me because I'd wanted this brother figure all the time that my mom got married. He had kids, all that. So the stepbrother's friend was in the shower. They had their own condo. He was in the shower and it was one of those clouded glass showers. Mm-hmm. And he called me in. He was like, can you bring a towel in here? And so I, walked in and I put the towel down and all I could see was the sort of vague shape of his body. And it was like, like it was so intense. And then I started thinking about men when I masturbated, it was like this crazy, like bridge moment. I I mean, probably like 13 or 14, I guess. Like, so, but I I still think about that moment sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) When I get up, it was so potent for me, but I just, I do sort of think like, how did my body get it? Like, I don't understand how my body got what was happening before I did, like what was running through me, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't even know if I have like a satisfying, even like, I'm just like, yeah, like, I feel like there were so many moments like that for me that just felt like, and I mean, in the same way that like when people talk about like, movies that they saw that were like very erotic like surprisingly like I, I mean I, I'm trying to think of like a good example because we before COVID my spouse and I would have this um m- by twice monthly uh we call it nostalgia movie night and we watch movies from like our childhoods um and or people from the group who are like all roughly around our age and everybody just comes in and we hang out and just watch old movies um and I, I don't know I feel like there were just all these like sort of strange moments. I mean, it's one weirdly, I can't, I mean, I can think of some that are sort of queer, but I also like, I feel like, I mean, this is like not a very original thing, but like everybody who's talked about how hot the Fox from the Rob Robin hood. Was, <laughs> yeah. Um, like ro- animated Robin hood Fox was like so much fucking so hot. So and, hot. Like, it's a deeply like butch there's, I mean, and it's like, I mean, it, like and a lot of people have said this, like, this is not just me, but like, I remember at the time being like, what? And like, imagining myself as made Marion. I mean, there was also a lot of like, it, I, I imagined myself into a lot of scenarios. Like that mm. was like a thing that I did. And it, sometimes it was sexual, sometimes it wasn't, but it was just this like way in which my brain, yeah, like gave me this way of thinking about myself in space and in the world. Um, and I feel like there were just all these like weird little moments like that, that were, and it's like, not like, I mean, I'm not, you know, foxes are not particularly erotic to me, but like, that sort of suave butch sort of swashbuckling character mm-hmm. is like very like potent, as you said. Like, <laughs> so like, <laughs> yeah. Sort of pre Bradley Cooper, but an yeah. animal who can use a bow and arrow. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I, mean, it's not him. I mean, it's like weird. It's like, when I think about it, it's like, I can imagine like all these little gestures of the animation. Like it's, mm. it also is like, and I haven't <laughs> seen it in, in, like I can actually imagine like there's this like part where he like looks at his nails kind of like this and I can like visualize it really clearly. And I haven't seen that movie in like 25 years. Like it's been a really long time. And I feel like there are you know, all these things like that. Um, 
Right. Or, or like, you know, again, this is not so original, but like David Bowie and Labyrinth was like very erotic to me, like that sort of chase and that sort of like dummy energy like thing. Um, so yeah, I feel like there are like all these like really interesting sort of like variations on that. But yeah. And it's like your body is like identifying something that's like really, like as you say, like very potent. Um, and I feel like, yeah, I've had lots of moments like that in my life. Um, and and yeah, so in a way, it's like, you know, when you, one arrives in one's sexuality in a knowing way, it's like actually not that, that surprising because you've been like moving towards it, right? Mm-hmm. Like your whole mm-hmm. life. And then suddenly you're like, ah, this is what I've been like slowly shaping in my psyche. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, yeah. I love, I love the way that you described it because like, I, I think like when I'm writing fiction, like the thing that I, I try to, the way I try to describe it is like, with like the characters that I'm writing, like I always feel like they're one step ahead of me. Um, I don't, I don't exactly know how they're going to respond and they can surprise me. And I do feel like desire is very similar. Like, and in fact, like characters operate sort of in a similar plane as desire where it's like, wait, why are you doing it? Why are you doing this? Why are you going there? Why are you saying this? You know? And that's the real pleasure is actually in following it. Not, not in trying, I mean, sometimes you have to rein it in, just like you have to rein the character in or, or the, the the word count or whatever, but you but you, you have to, the word count of your desire, but you have to like follow it is the pleasure, I think. So there's, I can also see that sort of connection between desire and that sort of artistic, creative unfolding impulse. But I don't know if you feel that way writing characters because you, I mean, you're writing mostly short form with fiction. As far as I know, you don't, you haven't written a, I don't know if you're writing a novel now or whatever, but like it becomes this constraining. Now you're like, (laughs) (laughs) one day maybe. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So, so um, yeah, it's this thing that's always ahead of you. And so I love the way you said it, where it's like, it's always been forming before, you even recognized it, you know? I mean, I think it's actually weirdly similar. It's funny because I talk a lot in my classes and when I give talks and stuff about the subconscious, because I'm actually super interested in, in the way the subconscious functions for writers. And I mean, speaking of Kelly Link, like one of the, something that was very, very sort of important to me kind of early on in like my sort of pre-professional life as a writer was this essay that she wrote in like, maybe like 2009, 2010, where she talked about, developing a relationship with your SP your silent partner. So just basically your subconscious, like this thing that's sort of brewing, you know, stuff inside of you. Um, and she talks about sort of ways to like feed it and like give it positive affirmations by like, when you get an idea, like writing it down and like sort of saying like, I would like more ideas, please. And like, you know, thinking in this sort of having kind of a holistic sort of relationship with your subconscious. And I think, and I think that that is really important. And I think it's a thing that like all kids have it, like all children like make things talk at each other. They're like, here's a dinosaur and here's like a whatever. And Mm -hmm. they make them like, you know, have a conversation. And like, I think that some people may retain that through like, you know, creative, in a creative life or, you know, sort of actively sort of accessing that. And some people just sort of lose it. Like they don't, they aren't able to like make up stories as adults in the way that they could Mm -hmm. as children. Um, but I, I do think that, yeah, this idea that like you can be surprised by your own brain, like I solve a lot of problems, like narrative problems by just going away and like taking a shower or taking a walk <laughs> or like, doing something else. And like the, the solution will appear to me unbidden. And so like people ask me like in my first book, um, in especially heinous, the girls with bells for eyes, like these, these ghosts of these dead murdered girls with these bells in their eye sockets. And I, people are like, where did the idea come from? And I was like, I was literally taking a shower and the idea popped into my head. 
Mm. Like I have no, I can't account for it. I have no idea. I was shampooing my hair and I was like, huh, that's a horrifying image, you know? And that like came from my subconscious. Like, I don't know what kicked that out. I mean, something was clearly like brewing in there. And then that just like appeared to me. And then I wrote it down and like, it became this like really like, I think, I don't want to say iconic. It's kind of arrogant, but like this very like sort of, I think, singular image in that story that people talk about a lot. And I think, and I've had a lot of experiences like that. And I feel like so much of my process is like accessing this bit of the subconscious and like, even like the, premise of my and like I don't write a lot from dreams because most of my dreams are kind of gibberish and gobbledygook and I'll like write an idea down and then the next morning I'll be like that was so brilliant and then I'll read it it'll be like just complete nonsense but <laughs> like my the premise of my graphic novel like this sort of scene of the girls in this movie theater and like something has happened to them was literally a dream I had I had a dream that I was in a movie theater stuff was being done to me and in the dream I was aware I was in a movie theater I was aware that something was happening to me but I knew that when I opened my eyes I was not going to remember and it was like Mm. this really disturbing like nightmare and I woke up from it and I was like fuck that was so upsetting where did that come from and then I like decided to I wrote it down and then like uh, you know many years later it became this the -hmm. premise of of this book so like yeah, like I feel like so much, and I feel like, yeah, I'd never thought about it in those terms, but like desire, I feel like acting in that same way where it's like this sort of amalgamation of like experiences and and things you're sort of seeing and your brain is just like turning it into something mm. and worrying it into, like, into a pearl or into some, you know, but like you just don't, you have no way of necessarily knowing or articulating, you know, especially when you're mm. that young, like what's actually going on in there. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much, there's so much to pull apart there. So like, I think, you know, with <clears throat> first I was thinking of, you know, Cesar Ira, um, who is just, you know, he's, <laughs> I don't know, he's written like 60 novels or something like that. I am, uh, I, I am so astonished by his output. I find it a little bit unnerving. <laughs> it's, seriously. It's like, he enjoys Carol Oates and he to have like a comp, like a, like a write off, like Superman <laughs> and the flash racing each other. But he, he, <laughs> He says he does this thing where he he just writes and then when he's done, like just as he's about to finish, he creates some impossible challenge for himself to resolve. And then he just figures he where he has to figure it out the next day. So that's how he bridges always. He's like, I just I just write and then I do some crazy thing at the end, and then I'm like, gotta figure it out tomorrow. How does this fit in? And he won't let himself remove it, which is even more sort of ast- astonishing. Um like so I, somebody described like a daredevil activity and I'm like, ah! like, <laughs> <laughs> like very, they're like, Oh yes. I just, I just ride a bike over a waterfall, like on a rope. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. But if you want to do that, that's fine. <laughs> I know. I know. It, well, and it was well, apparently it works for him. Right. It's like, you know, when Adam Phillips talks about, yes, I've written most of my books and, you know, over the course of a few days, you know, I've just, okay. But um, when, uh, but I was, but I was also thinking about this sort of. Um, well, I don't want to stray too far from desire and sexual desire, but let me just say one more thing about writing, which is like the the responsibility, the responsibility to know. It's a really interesting one to me. So when when you talk about oh, I was in the shower and like I thought about the bells for eyes, 
I, I struggle with that sometimes, like how much responsibility do I have to know, to guide, to investigate, to understand it, to sort of stand above the image that's appeared and how much, and, and how much do I allow to just sort of it, it, it show up, you know, like, a, like some sort of weird alien and just take over what's the responsibility? I know James Tate, the poet once said, you know, like I, I saw him at a reading and someone asked him, what sort of responsibilities do you think you have as a writer? And he said, I only feel responsible to my imagination. Mm-hmm. And so whatever shows up, it, it, I give something to it, you know, but then on the other hand, you could think of someone like James Joyce, right. Who is just sort of standing above all the images and the words and all the desires and like draws that show up. And he's like, okay, I'm going to have to actually stand outside of you to make you work. So I have to understand you really deeply. And so I, I obviously I love both those kinds of writing or those approaches, but I do struggle with the back and forth of investigating and knowing, and then just letting it show up. And I'm wondering if you feel, yeah, like, like, do you ever have that moment where there's a sort of, obligation to know more or are you like "Mm -mm, this the force of the presence of this image is too strong like it just has to go in god i guess i yeah i mean i never i'm probably more in the first camp like i I mean i you know i think also i'm lucky enough in that i think the word like because I do feel like so much of my process is very good. Like, it's not like I'm writing whole stories that way. Like that would be amazing. But that would, I don't do that. So I feel like it's like, you're like, it's like writing with control and then letting something like a flourish or letting something sort of be weird. Um, so I feel like there's actually like, I can think, I'm just thinking about like when I edited my first book, like my editor wanting to cut a couple of things not like the girls with bells for eyes, which obviously is such a vivid image, but I feel like there were some moments like the resident, my story, the resident had mm-hmm. a lot of like a little like weird gestures that I think, because also that's such a story about like the creative process. And I seem to remember my editor, like wanting to cut some of them and, and cutting some of them, but then some of them wanting to be left alone. Cause I was like, I know it's weird. And Can you just describe it. that story for people that might not have read oh, it? Oh, sure, like- sure, sure. Yeah. So the resident is a, so it's a story <coughs> first collection about a woman who goes to a writing residency in the Pocono, in the Pocono mountains. Though I don't name them ever. Um, but since, since you are a local, local to my hometown, um, <laughs> Uh, so she goes to the Poconos, which is and which is also where she and also I went to Girl Scout camp when when we were young, mm-hmm. and she basically is trying to like write this book, but also is like acts is like is like hovering around some part of her her memory that she can't quite access, and she's having a lot of thoughts about the creative process and madness and memory and accessing that. Um, and so there's just a lot of like very you know it's it's like a horror story. There's a lot of like very strange images and and things and like there's there's this dream there's this like dream sequence where she's I don't remember exactly what it is but it's like she's reciting something she's like she's like what's in the basket it's like two eggs like there's this weird like chant that she does and that was also like something that came to me like while I was taking a walk around like a residency that I was doing and it was so weird and I wrote it down and then I put it in and my editor was like I don't fully get this and I was like I don't either but I really like it can I just keep it? And he was like, sure. You know, I trust you, whatever you can do whatever you want. So I feel like part of it is like you being allowed to, <laughs> to, to like have a moment to leave something in. If it just strikes you as interesting. Um, mm. And I feel like so much of my process is like things that don't, that don't really, that on the surface don't seem like they're going to work, but then they do work. And I feel like there's so much of my process that's like that, that I just have learned to like trust it. Um, 
And then people will ask me questions like, oh, like what is like, I, I always thought about like this metaphor, it's image you created. And the, you know, it's like, well, the image I created, I created it out of my brain. And like, <laughs> I couldn't really explain it, but like, if you can think of a good metaphor in a way that it fits in, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. It's so funny because I was <clears throat> the, like the need to fit it into metaphor is really interesting. I remember when I was, oh, gosh, I, I forget how old I was. Um, yeah. Like in my late twenties and I like met Grant Morrison and we were like hanging out and I talked to him about his comic Sea Guy. And I was like, look, you know, I love Sea Guy. It's so amazing. And I just feel like people aren't ever going to get it. You know, like, it's just so weird. And he said, he said, yeah, I, I don't think people get it. Like when people see that there's like mummies going to war with the moon, they're like, what does that mean? What does that, what does that represent? He's like, it's mummies going to war with the moon. You know, <laughs> the, the, the aim for the metaphor is so interesting to me that, that, that that's constant. But I'm thinking now the way you describe it, like, like I'm wondering if actually to the extent the the, the extent to which we treat or respond to the image from the subconscious coming through defines what genre it is because like, it seems like horror a lot of times is everything sort of ordered. And then there's crack and this thing from where the fuck comes out, you know, and to the extent that that's defined, like when I talked to Kelly Lincoln, Jordy Rosenberg on the show, the subtitle or the, the subtitle, the whatever, whatever the, the title um, of the show was, uh, uh, a vampire is a theory because it's like the the forms that appear from the subconscious, then sometimes theories start even arranging themselves around those forms. And so then that's what the monster is. It's like the theory you have about the way this unconscious like came out into the ordered world, you know? I, I don't love- Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I, I love the idea that like the way you respond to the images is like the, the genre that you end up with. Um, because I feel like for me, I mean, I'm so interested in horror and I'm so interested in the ways in which like sort of reality, there's like a puncture and like you, something pops through and then like, suddenly everything is like, it's like people are just living their lives and something is not quite, is something is strange and something has like emerged. That's like very unsettling. And I think <laughs> for me, that's like a genre that I've always found very so I keep using the word potent because you used the word potent earlier, but it is like a very potent thing for me. And I, I, it's really interesting to me. And I think, I think in terms of horror in some capacity, like that's mm-hmm. just the way my brain is sort of oriented. Um, whereas other people might be more interested in like, you know, like sort of taking an image and like, you know, running it through like a science fiction mm-hmm. lens or like a fantasy lens or something. But I, I, yeah, for me, for some reason it, it is, it is horror. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I feel like also there's something really, I mean, the you know, I feel like the thing about metaphors is like, you know, in high school, most people in public education in the US, like you're learning this very sort of like way to like read metaphor in stories. So you like read The Great Gatsby and everyone's like the green light at the end of the dock, it's the American dream or whatever. <laughs> and then like you kind of grow up thinking that like books have like secret symbols that you have to like decode and the author put it in there and coded it and then you have to decode it and then suddenly you'll understand and I feel like it took me getting to be an adult and getting to be a writer where I was like oh like it's actually more complicated than that like you know a lot of times metaphor like metaphor can exist without you knowing it as the author and like you can sort of create images and like things that like have many sort of levels of meaning and like and you are also not always aware of what you're doing. Like there's so much, and I feel like, I don't know. I feel like this is also true just like all our education where like when people are young, like they're learning about like decoding art, but it's like art is a mystery. Like, you know, when you approach it, 
you know, whether it's literature or painting or a movie, like so much of it is like this sort of mystery you're sort of standing before. And like, we teach all about decoding, but not about just like experiencing something and then like trying to figure out what it means to you as opposed to like uh-huh. what it, you know, and I, I feel like it's a very like capitalistic way of like thinking about art when in fact it's like, we need to be more sort of, I don't know, like this like more spiritual about it. Um, and yeah, and I think we just like, and I think this is why, like I have all kinds of theories as to why people like don't know how to read short story, co- like why short story collections aren't nearly as like popular sort of in the reading, general reading public as like novels are. And I think part of it's because we don't educate kids to think about, or we don't, we don't educate like in public schools in the US, like how to like read a collection of stories by the same author and like think about how they kind of hang together. So there's just like ways in which we just don't address it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So God, this is just going to be one of those conversations where I like every time you speak, like I'm going to have 800 things that I want to say in response <laughs> and I'm going to have to limit it down to like one to three. But so, you know, Kelly Link, actually her story, the girl detective was really instrumental for me understanding that thing where like, because that so that story for people that don't know it's such a great story and it's basically this weirdo like completely it's not even deconstructed it's like um uh <laughs> i don't know what to say version of nancy drew stories where um the girl detective goes to hell like the girl detective meets all these bizarro um figures there's like and it's 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 impervious to interpretation in its way you know and um and so that really taught me like, oh, maybe we can back off. I mean, along with, of course, reading Susan Sontag's, you know, essay against interpretation, but like, I, and so, so that was, I, I love what you're saying. It's like, what, what happens when we're unsettled so, to the extent that we can't actually contain something by reducing it to what familiar meaning it might have to us, you know? Um I mean, I, I feel like horror narratives are one of the only places where spirituality still exists in like secular world. Like with, with horror narratives where, you know, there's this sort of spiritual presence in a lot of horror narratives, there's theological themes, there's spiritual beings, you know, there's weird sort of unexplainable stuff. And so, you know, it's one of the only places where spirituality and spiritual impulses find their footing in the kind of sort of popular narratives like you don't see you you might see religious overtones or things that have been sort of demanded by religious power in the world in art but as an actual theme the sort of dis the spiritual disruption in people's lives like basically you know constantly this like what if everything i knew was wrong like there's so much about belief in horror you know um there's <laughs> I always want to write a horror story where everybody believed that the monster was there because the so many horror stories take like the first three quarters with the main person trying to convince everybody that the horror thing is happening. And what would it mean if everybody was like, Oh yeah, that horror thing is happening. You actually kind of do that in Lolo woods where (laughs) everybody's in this town. They're like, yeah, this is how it is. And so it's a, you know, sort of a horror setting. So, okay, good. I don't have to write that story anymore. You did it. And you did it. I, I think this is a really good observation and I have a fear or I don't know if it's a theory, but like, it reminds me of this essay that I teach a lot when I teach horror, which is Love, Lovecraft has this essay on the super on supernatural, mm-hmm. supernatural horror. I mean, fuck Lovecraft. He was an asshole, but like he, he has a lot to say about 
you know, the potency of the unknown and this idea sort of in like human nature. I mean, it's, he's identifying something in like human psychology, but also like human, like physiology, like this, that, that like the unknown is like the thing that like, you know, that like right. when humans first existed, like we saw and heard things that we like had no way of explaining and like had no way of articulating or putting language to. And like that, that, that when we write horror, we're trying to kind of capture that sense of like, there is this like unfathomable thing that like is beyond us which is like god right like that's i mean if you believed in god like that's what that is right but it's also can be terrifying in its sort of scope and unknowableness and he actually talks in this essay this he has this great paragraph about how like this force is so potent he basically says in his own in like 1930s you know language he's like it's so powerful that there are writers who don't otherwise write horror who occasionally will write a horror novel as if like discharging like fan the phantasmic energy like that has been building up in their body so like you know like henry james is like mm-hmm. you know he's like you know who's mostly not writing ghost stories but he does write some and he's like it's just him like discharging mm. like th- this like sense of fear like an electrical impulse like from his body and i think that's so interesting this idea that like even and i I think of a couple of books like that where i'm like where like it's a horror novel kind of but like not in the way that you would expect and it's like not as typical of like the other person's work and it's like just somebody being like i felt horrified like i had a feeling i Mm. couldn't i couldn't put somewhere so i like wrote something and like it's very fucking upsetting (laughs) i don't know and that makes so much sense to me and i guess that is and it's funny because i like was a super religious teenager and like I'm now a non-religious adult but like for me like my the way I was drawn to horror when I was young and the same way I was drawn to spirituality which is like I wanted something to be bigger there was something bigger and unknown and I wanted to like access it or like be able to like look at it in the face you know and that was like both by like scaring the bejesus out of myself Uh (laughs) even though I was like a huge scaredy cat and like very anxious and still am and also, like, going to church and being like, maybe demons are real, you know? <laughs> Probably, right? So, like, I feel like, yeah, those impulses are, like, exactly the same. And I feel like shaped so much of my mm. childhood and so much of my, um, just, like, so, so much of my life, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's so fascinating you bring up that Lovecraft thing because it, there's also, like, a line. I don't know if it's in that essay or maybe it's actually in one of his stories, but it's something like the most merciful thing is that the the human mind cannot correlate all of its parts or something something like that i think i think so in a weird way lovecraft's also is sort of like he's demarcating that encounter with the unknown as a kind of mercy so like it, it like it's so strange that you say that like in some ways like you bringing those two statements together like horror is actually god's mercy like, which is so strange. Like the encounter with the unknown is actually a merciful thing. It just comes as a rush of like fear and terror because maybe we're not used to mercy, you know? And so, so rather than like, oh, I'm, I'm actually casting, like I'm repressing and there's so much kinetic energy in the thing that I've repressed that I have to like expel it every once in a while, you know? Um, maybe it's, uh, I can't bear living in a sort of unmerciful state of knowing everything. That's too painful. I have to cast myself into the mercy of things being strange, you know, and unexplainable from time to time. And I feel like that's also the subconscious and it's also desire. That's, it's, it's, all these things are connected to each other. 
And I've never, I just, oh my God, this is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With a desire too. It's like, you're just submitting to something. You're like, I don't know how to explain why like watching uh, Robin Hood, who's also a fox, examine his own fingernails. Even the foxes don't have fingernails. Like, I don't know why that, that triggered something, but like it did. And like, I submit to it. Like, you know, there's like nothing I, I can sort of say or do or explain. And I think that, yeah, yeah, some people, and I think that people, I feel like I, 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 this is, there's like a certain type of, I think, reader or person, people who, you know, I've read things people have written about certain books where it's like some people just don't, don't like to be puzzled and don't like to mm-hmm. be confronted with the unknown and don't like it when mm-hmm. they can't explain something and something feels kind of abstract or uncertain or sort of boundless. Like, I feel like people do really sometimes struggle with that. Um, I think for all kinds of reasons, but especially I think because it is so terrifying. And if you're not like making it a daily practice to like, walk up to the unknown and be like hello like you you then mm. you, you encounter it and you can't parse something and you can't quite hold on to it it becomes like truly terrifying um and unsettling and you're people like i hate this i don't like this mm. you know I, or it's like certain like you know i mean it's like reminds me of like when i it's not quite the same but like i remember when i went to um see the witch in theaters i don't know if you mm. if you mm-hmm. Uh, saw it in theaters but I was a friend and we loved it like we were like so ready and I remember we got to the ending and somebody got up somebody in the theater like got up and was like what is this bullshit and, like got up and like walked away it was like, like, <laughs> mad about, like and I think it's because they were like looking for something whatever they were expecting as a viewer like they weren't receiving it and they were like I can't deal with this and I was just like this movie's so fucking weird I love it like oh, it's so strange and I, yeah I feel like for me it's like that's just like a pleasure it's like I want to be feel that I want to feel that fucked up and like completely like rudderless. Like, I feel like that's a really. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, that movie is a, a masterpiece. I mean, I love that movie so much, but I, and I, I think, gosh, so like, I'm thinking now <laughs> that maybe also sexuality is a genre. So like sexualities are genres, like, because the way that the thing that, the desire is expressed and the way you respond to it marks your sexual identity. And so rather than seeing them as these sort of like fixed things, it's like, well, what genre are you in right now? Like, which one, which one are you reading? And like, of course, genres are all sort of eroding and blurring now. Um, but, but then I'm thinking like, you know, people who, people who can't handle it are heterosexual. Right. So like, <laughs> No, to some of my heterosexual friends, but like I, I often like it because it's it's funny because like when people talk about homo, I don't know. This is funny. This is actually tragic. Like when people talk about homophobia, I think that like the one of the things that's so overlooked is the main component of homophobia, which is not to me actually violence against gay people. That's a, that's that's part of it, of course, but that's actually much rarer compared to the main sort of surface aspect of homophobia, which is that I grew up with desire for men knowing that 90% of the population wouldn't allow themselves to desire me of the male population wouldn't allow themselves to desire me back. Like that's actually like, for me, the, the cruelest aspect of homophobia is that there's a response to the image of a penis or an asshole or like this handsome face that I've got on right now. And it's like, I can't allow myself to 
go there. Now, obviously, some people are just not going to be attracted to me because they're not attracted to me. But as it's defined by the fear of the image, like that to me, that's such a profound like contour homophobia and people just don't talk about that part at all because everything's sort of supposed to be sort of naturally set in its sexuality. Like, well, just straight people just aren't attracted to people of the same sex. Like is how it's explained, but that is the loneliest, most horrifying part of it. You know, especially when you grow up in the Lehigh Valley or wherever else that you, you know, might feel isolated. I guess I'm, and, I, and now I'm like thinking, cause I'm also, fe- I also feel like, there are people who discover stuff about their own sexuality and are like neutral to happy about it. Like they're like, ah, some new thing I've learned about myself. Mm-hmm. Right. Whether it's like orientation or like a kink or like a, des- a just like fantasy. Like you're like, you're like, ah, like I'm just, it's the same way you discover that like your body, you know, you just got something new about yourself that you like are. And there's something kind of like delightful about that, I think. But I think some people find that really terrifying. Like the idea that like there's some part of them that they didn't know about that suddenly they're, they have access to and they're like, oh my God, like, why do I like that thing? And it's like, you know, I think for me, it's like the only way to like be is like, I'm just being like, okay, like I'm open to like my own whatever it looks like, my own subconscious, my desire, like this thing that's like inside of me that like, mm-hmm. you know, like if it surprises me in some way, I mean, you know, maybe not as much nowadays, but like still, you know, and like, and then that I find that like, ah, I've learned a new thing about myself. But I think some people mm-hmm. do find that idea terrifying that, that there's something about them that doesn't, that they, uh-huh. that was a mystery to them until like a certain moment. Well, how interesting then, because you write these stories very often where there's like a body horror moment, but it's like, so body horror for people that don't know what that means. It's like basically David Cronenberg is like the go-to like for that. Some weird shit's happening to your body or like Charles Burns's black hole or whatever. Some weird shit is happening to your body and you don't know why and it's freaking you out and it's horrifying, right? (laughs) So like... But you write these body horror stories like Lolo Woods and Husband Stitch and some some others where like something is happening to someone's body, but they're not the one necessarily experiencing the horror about it. It's the other person that can't handle the thing that's happening to that person's body or wants mm-hmm. something from it or some outcome. They can't they can't sort of deal with it. And so I think um because what you're describing is like your ability to sort of navigate the changes in your desire set. I think that's actually, I would say it's actually probably rare capability and, and comes from, I don't know about you, but for me, I can do that quite well now. And I consider that to be healthy, but that comes from navigating years and years of pain and suffering, hitting a wall against that one thing. Like I used to stand in front of a mirror after I'd hook up with my neighbor, I would stand in front of the mirror and slap myself in the face and say, never again, like, don't do that again. Don't. And then of course the next day I would have sex with him again, you know? So like I hit that wall like pretty early and then I worked sort of my way through it. And now I'm like, okay, Oh, there's that wall. Okay. I know how to get through that without <laughs> slapping myself in the face, like so dramatically, like Joan Crawford getting ready for the shoot or something like, <laughs> like you know, <laughs> It's so hard. I mean, I think, and that might be, I mean, I feel like for me, I didn't go through, like, it's so weird because I did go through a religious phase. And like, at the time that I was, I wasn't, 
I was not out to myself. Like I didn't understand that I was gay, but I also remember saying things like to my fellow evangelical. Also, actually, I was raised Methodist. Like I was not raised in the evangelical church. I found the evangelicals. Like I fell in with a gang of evangelicals. <laughs> I was like, they really believe they're like super serious. But even with them, I remember being like, guys, I don't think God hates gay people. Like, that doesn't, that doesn't like jive with any sense of God that I understand. Like even then, you know, I feel like I was like trying to like, I was like figuring something out, but I also, I don't know, but I do feel like in some ways body horror, I mean, I feel like the body horror that I experience is not related to desire, but it's related to like aging. Like I'm like, mm. like, I feel like, you know, the first time I threw my back out when I was leaning over, I was like leaning over to like lock up my bike or something. And I was just like, Oh God, like, you know, it's like the body, no. is, the body is weak. The body is, is, you know, inevitably going to fall apart. Like I do feel like I do experience body horror on that level where I'm like, I'm like, well, you know, <laughs> here it goes. Like, there's just some new, fresh horror, like, every year, additional year of your life, you're alive. And, you know, so that part of it, I feel like, is a hor- an actual horror that I access. But it's not, luckily, it's not related to desire. It's just like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, totally. <laughs> um, yeah, well, um, I mean, I think, so, <laughs> okay. So let's, I want to just sort of... Um, you know, I mean, first of all, I don't know how you take talking about like abuse narratives as much as you do because they're intense, but let's talk about abuse narratives now. It's actually what we first talked to each other about ever. Um, So, you know, you sent me an email in 2012. I like looked back into my emails and um, first of all, like I can't, even believe that that connection was made that long ago and like really anyway um so i want to talk about that and it was in response i'd written an essay for people that don't know called um if you ever did write anything about me i'd want to be about love about my uh ex-boyfriend who beat me up and i was hospitalized recently i actually um found out that he's since become a nurse First of all, I was thinking, who were those nurses that took me in the day that he beat me? <laughs> and how is he approaching people who come into the hospital that he is going to work at or the situation he's going to work at who who have been, you know, sort of damaged? But I was thinking, you know, the afterlife of the person in the imagination who who is a who has abused us, like who they become to us, how we think about them is something I want to discuss because there's so much discussion around and rightfully so. And thank God there's some of this and your, your book helps with this. Like, this is what happens in a relationship. These are the warning signs. Um, this is how you deal with it. Then you get out and all that. And there's very little talk about the constant afterlife, except in terms of were you traumatized? Is this trauma? I think I still, that that was, like I said, so I, I brought up why you wrote me that email just in 2012, because that's when the essay came out. I The abuse happened in 20, 2007, and I still think about him like every week. And I've never interacted with him except for once in between all there. I've never interacted with him again. Um, but I still have an imagining of him uh, mm-hmm. co- constantly. And so thinking about him going out and being a nurse in the world, thinking about him changing his form, his skin, his life. Um, and so I, 
I tweeted about this today and people were like, oh, you know, they do background checks and like, he, he wouldn't be allowed to be a nurse if, if blah, 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 or, you know, like people were just sort of like, I mean, maybe I don't know the timeline of it, but basically or like, he should never work again. is kind of like the idea. And I'm like, yeah, like yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Like I know people that didn't know he was my ex-boyfriend that I'm friends with who became friends with him without knowing, you know, it's like people shift and move into these different kinds of lives. So I think I want to start there, like not in the, not in the abuse, but in the far removed afterlife of the person, you know? Yeah, no, it's such a, this is such an interesting framing. It's way better than, I feel like I get in all these interviews and people are like, tell me about what happened to you. And I'm like, Dream House says repeated podcast question. I know. Right? <laughs> <laughs> no, this is a really interesting question. This is actually something that I think about a lot. And I mean, I, you know, I think there's a, there's a couple of, it's like, we don't really have like language or ways of thinking about it, right? Beyond this idea of like being re traumatized. So it's like, right, like how does this person occupy your head when you're not thinking about like the bad things that happen necessarily, but you're thinking about like, yeah, like where they are. And you know, in some ways it's hard because the, my abuser, like we have like an, like some overlapping circles. Like, you know, this is a person who like, you know, I know, I know some things about not very much because I, mm-hmm. when people try to tell me about, it, I'm just like, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to hear, I don't want to, I don't want to talk about it or know what's going on. Cause for a while I was kind of plugged into sort of some stuff that was happening and it was so depressing and mm-hmm. stressful that I just, I was like, at some point I was like, I can't handle this anymore. I just, you know, um, but I, but I do still think about her. Like she comes up in conversation and there are like little things that kind of on a day, I don't know for you. I don't know if it's like bad things or good things, but like sometimes it's just like, you know, a memory or, you know, a, a little like detail. Like she really hated, um, she used to leave glasses around like uh, glasses of, of liquids with a little sip at the bottom. Like she'd always leave like a little mm. film of liquid. And because she, she thought that the last swallow felt like spit Mm. and so literally every time i am finishing a drink i like i like have this thought (sighs) where i'm like drink you know and i like i'll like sort of finish the drink and be like you know Uh i don't know what i'm thinking it's just like it's like this yeah there's a weird way in which she's present um Mm -hmm. and i'll do something i mean you know whenever i have any kind of like like i'll do a thing and I'll, i'll have this thought where i was like if i was still with her xyz you know like like the thing that I, that just happened wouldn't have gone so smoothly or you know mm-hmm. we would have done this or like you know and there's just ways in which like you know and i think that's true of like a lot of people like i mean i do think about people in my life that i haven't seen in a long time you know sometimes they also appear in, in my in my mind and that's normal but i think for me what's so hard is like that it's not always it's not all, I mean, like writing the, the memoir was traumatic, like writing the memoir was really difficult and it was really painful. But I also feel like even these like day-to-day things, sometimes, you know, I have nightmares and sometimes I wake up and I'm like kind of fucked up. And I, and I feel like sometimes my nightmares, the nightmare is that like we're together and she's acting fine. And in my head, I'm like, this isn't right. Something's not right here, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like all these ways when my brain is sort of trying to like reconcile the thing that makes abuse so difficult, which is like, the people who abuse you are people who also like you love, right? Mm-hmm, but like mm-hmm. what makes abuse possible is a kind of love and a kind of closeness. And so, you know, it's like my brain trying to rationalize, like there were like good things, like there was like good sex and like fun times and like good dinners and like 
intimate moments and like all of that was tied up with like horror you know Mm -hmm. like pure unmitigated horror and so like in like the weird like mishmash of my brain it's like my brain is trying to sort of like I think makes sense of a thing that's like essentially also like unknowable and you know this question of like like one of the things I write about in the memoir is like how some of the most sort of physical stuff that happened she would claim to not remember it like she would claim to have no memory of anything that happened Mm -hmm. And I feel like a thing that comes up a lot is, is people would ask me, or I would be talking to a friend, they would be, the question would be like, just, do you think she was lying? Like, do you think she actually did? Like, was it sort of a dissociative episode or was she, is she, was she just telling you that? Cause she didn't want to have to address it. And I was like, I don't know. And I will never know. Mm-hmm. And like, it's for a while that really disturbed me. Like for a while, this question of like, does she, is she on some level aware of what she's done or is she truly in denial and like, I will never know the answer to that question. And that is sort of unknowable. And, and the fact is that people who've done bad things go off and live their lives and like, they have their own like day-to-day stuff and like, yeah, like getting a job and, you know, like having friend circles and like to know like what level of awareness they bring to their life. Like, you'll never know. You'll never know. And I feel like it's for a while, I think that really bothered me because I, I don't know, which is weird because in like in so many ways I'm so comfortable with like ambiguity and the unknown. But for some reason I was like, I just have to know because I feel like it 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 almost made me, I was like trying to figure out like what what is what does that say about me? Like, you know, like how does that like like was I like I don't know, like there's something that I it's like it's like if I if I could figure out the exact machinations of her brain, then I can understand better like what I walked into. Right. And it's like, I, I, and I feel like so much of like writing the memo was like, you know, coming to this understanding of like the, yeah, there's just so much that I can never know. And that's normal. And like, and like the, to want to know is normal, but also to not know is very normal. And like, I would probably never have that understanding and like, that's okay. Yeah. I feel like that was a whole journey I had to go on, you know, that was like a whole like process in addition to writing this book. So, so it was just like a really, I don't know. Yeah. I I mean, I, I, I think it's so, it's so intense. I mean, I just think it's like some of what you're talking about that, like I, I want, I mean, while I was with him, like I also wanted to inhabit him like generally, like I wanted to sort of, I mean, you, you want that with anybody that you're with in some way, but like maybe in the case of when when there's like a break because abuse happens um, f- from that person, the relationship you have, it's like you want to have it then because like in some ways I want to know how culpable I was. And that, as, ho- as horrible as that sounds, like, I mean, this, this is a messy area probably for some people that are listening because, and, and I'm, I'm just going to get sort of messy about it because it's my experience. It's fine. And we'll see what you, if you relate or, or, or not to it, but like, I I don't feel culpable for what he did to me, mostly. <laughs> you know, like, there's still this part of me that's just like, and I remember I had this psychoanalyst who, people are going to, this might really upset people, but I remember saying to her, you know, I was sitting next to him, you know, we were by the Charles River in Boston, and I was sitting next to him, and I looked at him, and I thought, oh, like, you're going to be in love with me and I'm going to be in love with you. And, and I, and I sort of decided at that moment that that inwardly I could feel it. And she said, she said, Oh, that's when you decided he was going to hit you. And it was this horrible 
thing that she said to me, like, it was like, fuck you. Like I got so upset and I was like, you're blaming me for this or whatever. But I, I also understood. And in some ways, you know, you could say she was a shitty analyst. She, she wasn't, she was quite good at what she, (laughs) what she did. But there was also this part of it that was like, see, there's like an entanglement in the way that you think about love and how the relationship unfolded for you is what she was saying. And, and wanting to get in the person's mind to figure that out, like, why was this my model of love? Like, how did this happen? How did I do this? Even though none of the actions of the other person are your fault, clearly, you know, but that's so hard to sort of pull apart and <laughs> explain to people. And I certainly wouldn't put that on anybody else's experience. I'm really just talking about mine, but I know other people must have similar feelings to that you know I mean I think I sort of I know the exact like threat or the exact like needle you're threading right now and I like and I'm like yeah like this is like it's so like it's like (laughs) hella problematic but I like super 100% understand what you're talking about Uh (laughs) the idea that like right it isn't like the it isn't like your fault right but you're you're like It's like there is a person who enters into a scenario like the one that I was in, that you were in, and like it happens or it doesn't happen, right? Like, mm-hmm. like, like the and like obviously, like a you know, abuse has its own power and dynamics, and like things can be sort of shaped, but like I think that one of the hardest things for me writing the memoir was like thinking about like what 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 brought me there? Like, why did she come to me? Like what brought me to her? Was her attraction to me knowing on some level that I would be like a horse that'd be fun to, to, to break? Like, 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 you know what I mean? Like the, like the sense of like, and like, you know, and maybe none of that is conscious. Like maybe that's just like, you know, it's like, there's something about, there was something about me that, that suggested that I would be, that I would be someone to whom this would be possible, I guess. And that, yeah. And I think that's not necessarily articulating fault. It's just articulating that like there are dynamics, like it's like, I'm trying to think a good example. I feel like it's like, if somebody, if somebody like, if you were like walking up to somebody and someone threw a barbell at you and you caught it or didn't catch it, cause it was either heavy or too heavy mm. or not heavy. And it's like the other person threw it at you. So that was not your fault. But the person who, who walked toward that, toward your, toward the person with the barbell, this is a very messy metaphor. Like, <laughs> I get it though. Grab it or wasn't, do you know what I mean? And like, those right. are just like, which maybe it's not right. Cause it's not necessarily about strength exactly, but it's like, there's just, yeah. Like, I don't know. There's like dynamic that like. And I don't, like, I don't know about you and like your child, obviously you said your parents, like you had a step, step parents, like your parents are divorced, but like, I, my parents were not, well, they're divorced now, but they weren't when I was a kid, but like, like when I was dating this person, they were still together. But I also, my parents had a really ugly marriage that had a lot of really shitty dynamics that like got incredibly normalized for me. And it's only now that I'm like in a healthy, <laughs> healthy marriage that I'm like, oh, that was really bad. Like I, I like is supplementing all this stuff about relationships. That I don't think I even fully understood at the time but now I can see it really clearly and it's really bad and like there are other people in my family who like replicate those dynamics kind of thoughtlessly and like I can see them replicating it in a way that I have chosen not to so I feel like there's just like stuff that you yeah I don't know (laughs) no I mean you're you're... yeah sorry go ahead no 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 no. that's that's it I mean the barbell thing like just watching you try to sort of walk through that it's actually it's 
it perfectly illustrates the fact that like we just don't have a language to talk about this at all. We have the language, and in in a lot of ways, it's the right one to talk about when someone abuses you, fuck them. Like that's mm-hmm. their fault. They did that. Get out if you can, and if you can't seek help, and you're not to blame if you can't get out right away. Like mm-hmm. we have that kind of language, and that's really helpful to sort of um, identifying and assisting pe- identifying the abuser, the abuse, and assisting the person who's being abused. But when it comes to these other levels, like it just that kind of language formulation is just not really happened. And the ways that it has are always kind of unsatisfying. Like if you look at like stuff, like, you know, psychology from the seventies or whatever, it's just like, you really wanted it to happen or whatever, you know, in ways that are just not useful or, you know, and not complex enough to really identify the situation. But it's, it's something, it's something more like, um, like when I tell people that I, I left and I'd be like, I never want to see him again. And people are like, yeah, you don't want to see somebody who did that to you. And I'm like, no, no, that's not it. I don't ever want to see him again because I would fall in love with him. Like I cannot be around this person because I love them so much and I don't fucking get it. Like I don't get why I would still feel that way at all. And um, I, I, and and maybe this will help clarify too. I did see him, like I said before, I saw him once in the whole span between then and, and, and now I was at the gym working out in LA and this is, I don't know, like, uh, gosh, it's gotta be seven or eight years later, maybe. And I'm working out and I see him working out and I'm like, Oh fuck. Like, <laughs> okay, what do I do? And all the thoughts are sort of like going through my head. And I'm like, well, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna finish my workout. Like, I'm just gonna finish my workout. And like, if he comes up to me, I guess I'll say hi to him. But like, I'm just gonna finish my workout. Um, And if I like bump into him, like, then maybe I'll say something. Finish my workout. I didn't see him. And I was like, thank God. Like, and guess what, Connor, you did it. You finished your workout. You didn't fall apart, blah, blah, blah. So I felt so okay in a certain sense. And then I'm walking out and I'm like, I guess he must've left. And then I turn and he's standing literally right in front of me. And he says, uh, and, and he says, Hey, how you doing? And I was like, hi. And then I walked outside the gym and then the rib that he broke popped out of place. And I had to do physical therapy for like weeks. So like there was this, on the one hand, this over itness, And on the other hand, this thing that was just completely held that like fell out of place and, di- and did sort of. And so I think that that sort of tension there, it's like, there's always this flashing back and forth of the parts of you that are okay. And the parts of you that will never, you won't even know that they're not okay until they reveal themselves as pain, you know? Um, and and because of that, how can we talk about, <laughs> we, we, we don't have language, we don't have language from multiple selves. We don't have language from multiple registers of pain and healing. We don't have language for multiple levels of 
I got into this for this reason. None of this is my fault. Like it's almost as if we'd have to, like a bird has that little thing in his throat box that can sound two notes at once. We'd have to tell two stories at the same exact time, like with our own mouths, you know, to be able to describe what happened. I mean, I feel like so much of like working on this book. And then like when I was like researching, like sort of historically, just like the conversations about like DV and like queer, like queer communities, like, I just kept observing at like how shitty we are at like putting language to stuff. Like mm-hmm. and it's true of like in all kinds of ways. It's true because like, we, it's like, we don't, it's like the language we have to identify like domestic violence is like very young, right? Like it only kind of really started in like the late seventies. And like, we are mm-hmm. still like, like, you know, we like until then, like we just didn't have a way of talking about that in the same way that like, when you look back into like language of like historical queerness, like, the words are different or they don't exist or it's thought of as not possible. Like, yeah, there are all these ways in which we just simply do not have the language. And like, as I was writing the book, I just kept running up against that. And I think for me, like, that's why also like writing about like the good stuff, like the sex, like I was like, it's really hard to articulate Mm. what it means that like, it was because it was so good. And like, that meant so much to me. And like, why, you know, and like, yeah, I, I think this idea that like, it's just like, it's like a sound we can't make. It's like, we, yeah, we like, we don't have a way of talking about it that feels correct. And then if you say things like, like you said, that people are just like, how dare you say blah, blah, blah. Like we all know that like, you know, very simplified narrative. And it's like, well, but it's not that simple. Like it's more complicated than that in the ways that mm-hmm. like desire is complicated, you know, like human experience is complicated. And I feel like people really hunger for like a narrative that like is clear. Mm-hmm. And it's, a, and like when you show up and you show up and you say like, it's not clear, like it's, it's very complicated. And like, I, I'm just trying to articulate to you how complicated it is. Um, people often respond so badly to that. I feel like it's hard to be that person saying like, I don't, you know, it's not something that you and I can talk about even directly, even as people that have experienced it. I mean, you wrote a whole book about it and like the book demanded, it sounds like just multiple ways of telling the story and, you know, and, and multiple threads to come in to even ex- express it. So, you know, it's not like th- there can't be a demand for us to be the ones that express it perfectly you know, articulate it for everybody else you know even as as you've you've tried at great length and i've tried a little bit you know in my short essay but it's like um but just the point is to say like this is this is complex and like do we want to talk about it in a complex way because the the complicatedness of it understand the complicatedness of it would have helped me you know, yeah. that, 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 and yeah. it still will help me if I can ever figure it out. But I was also thinking about like, you know, I had this writer, I don't know if you know her work. She's just incredible. Um, sci-fi writer, Sarah Maria Griffin on the show. And she, um, she had talked about how once she was at a bar and or a pub here in Ireland and like her friends were sort of sitting around and this guy is basically sort of hitting on her, like flirting with her or whatever. And then at a certain point, he just like grabbed her by the throat and just started like being kind of mean to her. And when she laughed, her friends are like, are you okay? That was crazy. And she's like, yeah, I'm fine. And so we talked about that a little bit. 
this other thing that's de-emphasized or not talked about when we talk about abuse, violence, all this kind of stuff is the way that sometimes violence actually just runs off our back. And she was like, I wasn't repressing it. I wasn't like, whatever. It just didn't bother me. And so I, I want to sort of bring that in too. Like we actually don't talk about the times when like real either resilience or, uh, I don't even know what to call it. We're just like, "Mm -mm, nope, it's just not going to, I'm just not even letting that in. Sorry. And because we don't talk about those stories either, like the active, the anything that looks like violence from the outside that should, well, or is violence, anything that is violence, but like that looks like from the outside, like it should be causing permanent or like fucked up damage to us. Like it doesn't, we don't we 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 judge it that way and i feel like that goes hand in hand with people thinking things like oh he just grabbed her ass at the club why should she be so bothered by that event that's not like being pulled into the bushes and raped like i feel like this whole subjective puzzle piece but we don't the one thing we don't talk about ever i don't think is the side where people like yeah that didn't I, I was fine. I didn't. And and trying to understand why that is, why sometimes we can do that. Yeah. I feel like my own psychology has become protective. And so like, I, you know, after I was out of this relationship, I remember having this, there was this person who I was flirting with, who I'd known since actually who I went to school with. And she, we were sort of chatting at each other for a while. And I had this thought like, oh, I could hook up with her now. Like now that I'm not in this relationship anymore, that would be like really great. And we were having some chat and she said something. I can't even remember what it is at this point. And it set off like every mm. bell in my brain, like everyone. And I, I like had this weird freak out and then like just stopped talking to her. And, and I remember just being like, what was that about? And like, I could, I'm too afraid to even go back and look at what it was. The thing that she said that just made me like, it gave me this like weird, like, and I, I feel like I had developed a sixth sense. So I feel like I'm having, I have kind of the opposite thing where I've just developed this like radar. That's just like way more, I mean, who knows if it's accurate or not? Like that's, I think that's the problem is like, but I feel like I've had a few reactions to people where I've met somebody or I've had an interaction with somebody and suddenly my hackles go up and I don't even know how to articulate it or how mm. to like, and it's because I'm identifying something that's like, that's like sort of sudden, but I'm trying to think of anything that like an example of like the opposite. I mean, it's weird because in some ways I'm like, I, you know, growing up in my family, like there was always this funny little narrative that my parents had about how I was a big sensitive baby. And my brother was like, you know, so tough. And what's funny is it's so sexist because like, <laughs> I'm like so cold. And so like, yeah. I, am, I am that way na- naturally. And my brother is like the sweetest, softest little mm. flower. Like he's just this like real, just tender little button. And I am just like a fucking cunt. Like, I'm just so <laughs> mean. And like, and like, I've always been that, but I feel like now it's like my capacity for that sort of like closing off. And being mm. like, I don't like this. I don't like this. I'm done with this. I'm not dealing with this. This is over is like very pronounced now in this way that even, and I mean, part of, I guess like part of that, it was attributed to just like aging, like I'm getting older. And so like 
my tolerance for stuff is just like, mm. but it's not even that the tolerance is lower. So I just don't want to, yeah, I'm like, I'm too, I'm, t- I don't want to deal with this. This is like, you know, so I don't know if that, if that's what that is. Like, I don't know if it's, <laughs> I don't, I'm like, I feel like I'm describing a lot of things right now. I'm just, I'm, that's not a fully formed thought. Well, but. no, let, let me, let me, cause you were talking about your brother. Like, so I knew two guys who are, who are brothers that were both, it, they were both molested by their same piano teacher. Okay. Mm-hmm. And one of them was completely like really upset with about by it and carried it into his life. And the other was like, yeah, it sucked. Right. And I'm only, I'm so interested in that. Obviously, like, and by the way, and all these things, none of them are saying that the abuse is right. I'm just interested in the difference here in response, because I want to know what happens in the person that's like, that's okay. So I can learn. (laughs) so i can learn what that is you're like what's that trick that you figured out yeah and i can think about instances in my own life like uh, you know just weird weird sexual instances where someone just kept doing something that i wasn't into while we were having sex and i could imagine someone else being really shattered by it and me just being like just can you just fucking stop doing that you know like so, but not okay. to, not to determine anybody else's experience, but I just want to know what that is in me, where those lines are drawn. And I want us to talk about that more because we talk about, we talk about um, the damage of the violation so much that I think we could also talk about like the, the, uh, the, resilient, the resilience or yeah, just resilience or even just sort of like, um, yeah, just inner, like real, real strength, you know, or maybe it doesn't even feel like strength. Like sometimes it's just like a nothingness. It's just like, no. So I, 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 I hesitate to even call it resilience and strength sometimes. Cause I think in those moments, it just sort of feels like nothing sometimes, you know? I mean, I wonder, yeah. And I feel like this is also, I also am so curious about this question when it, when this sort of thing, I know exactly what you're describing and like when that manifests and I wonder if it has to do with just like individual psychology. Like, I wonder if it's not about like a thing you learn or don't learn or a thing you can acquire, but mm-hmm. it's like, maybe you are the sort of person who can sort of, com- I mean, it's it's also compartmentalization is part of it. Like this capacity to sort of be like, something happened. It's really hard to talk about. I'm going to just like, mm-hmm. like put it in a little box and put it somewhere. And as long as it's just like in the corner, it's fine. And I, I'm actually fine. Um, Though we maybe God help you if you go get the little box and bring it down like that. <laughs> but like, I, I I wonder if that's that's what that is. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I don't feel like almost like qualified to like articulate. Mm. Like, I, I I don't know because I definitely feel like I am a. I mean, it's like it's like I think. I'm trying to think how to articulate it. It's like when I began my tour for this book. I did an interview like early, like a few months before the book came out and I sobbed through the whole interview. It was like on NPR. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I cried so hard. I felt so bad for the interviewer who was lovely. Like she was great. She asked lots of great questions, but I was such a mess. And like, I called my publicist afterwards, like sobbing hysterically being like, I'm so sorry. I do my first interview. I fucking fall apart. Like, I'm really sorry. And she was like, I'm so sorry. Should we like reschedule your other, you know, it's just this whole thing. And I remember thinking, fuck, I'm not going to do any of these. And every interview after that was fine. 
Mm-hmm. And it was like, I just needed to, it was like, there was just, for some reason, it was like, there was this one that like, I was just in a really weird place. And like, and then after that, I was able, I mean, it's, I'm, at the, I'm at the point where I'm like, increasingly, I don't want to talk about the memoir anymore, which is not saying that about you, but like, just I, I'm, 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 like, specifically I, I, on this episode, increasingly, I'm, so I'm tired. No, <laughs> but I feel like at some point I do actually really want to like, just be like, I'm not really, I don't really want to talk about that book anymore. Right. Like, you know, but like, I do feel like eventually I got a little bit. Like I was able to talk about it because I felt kind of like, I felt like I was kind of in, I was like, I was like um, in like on autopilot and I would always read the exact same parts of the memoir and I would never deviate from Mm -hmm. that length ever. And it was like to the point where I could recite like whole parts of that book by heart because I was reading something over and over and like, and people were like, is it upsetting to read? And I was like, no, because I'm not even registering what I'm reading. Mm -hmm. Like I couldn't even tell you what I just said. But they were like, you read beautifully. And I'm like, yeah, I'm sure I did. I'm sure it was great. I have no, I don't really know what I was reading. I just know it was like a, you know, a series of excerpts. So like, I feel like there is something about like, ugh, I don't know. Yeah. It's a, like there's some capacity for like creating a little, like it's almost like how, um, God, it's like, speaking of disgusting body horror, like, you know how like cysts get that little like skin around them. It's like, there's just like a thing that's being created. That's like keeping it kind of isolated and it's a little pocket and I feel like that's kind of what it is is it's like I'm just going to create a little protective little sort of cyst like (laughs) around it's so gross I know sorry I watch a lot of pimple popping videos I know you do I know you do (laughs) (laughs) I know you do I heard that yeah Well, yeah, I mean, it's good. You know, not many cis won, win book awards, so that's great. Um, but, I I think, <laughs> but, I, but I mean, I think like, I guess I'm just saying like with all of this, you know, it's got, it's got to be really frustrating, first of all, or maybe not. Maybe you don't think it's frustrating, but it's got to be frustrating. It's like you write a book about abuse and your life and love, and then suddenly you're an expert on abuse. Like everybody's turning to you as an expert. But I think like I'm not. I I hope, you know, I'm not turning to you or myself as experts on abuse, but rather like just, just as people who might have some uh, breathing room to discuss different contours, that's all, you know? And, and I think that I want those conversations because I, I also feel like so often conversations about abuse are determined by people on the outside I mean, a lot of of people experience abuse in many different ways, but are determined by a certain kind of narrative that's formed from the outside that doesn't allow for much room and serves, serves a certain purpose. And sometimes that purpose isn't even good, but serves a certain purpose. And I don't, and I don't want it to stay. I don't want to stay stuck there. I want it to move and I want it to move in both directions. I don't want it to simply um, continuously, catastrophize or, or deepen our uh, deepen our um, sensitivity to what might happen to us. Mm-hmm. I want it, I want it to express all the ways in which things are fucked up and can be horrible and you know, whatever, whether they're illegal or legal or blah, 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 blah. But I also want it to go the other way. I also want it to bring us to a place where we're like, yeah, and I can sort of understand all these other contours of it as well. The contours where I am healed, the contours where we can talk to each other, where we can think about what the other person was going through. I mean, certainly as, as someone, I, I always thought about 
holy shit, he must have been in so much pain. And I realized that that was sort of a deflection or a distraction mm-hmm. from what I had gone through. But I also think that was a genuine care and a genuine feeling for somebody that I cared about. So even down to that level, I know you, you've you brought up in interviews, I forget the name of the book, so I hope you'll name it for me so I can put it in the show notes, but, but the woman who interviews her rapist and it's, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. you know, and um, I, you know, there's part, I mean, I don't think I could ever do it, but there's part of me that just like, that's what I want more than anything is to like, sit down with this person and be like, why, why did you tell me what was going on? Like, how could this have happened? I don't think he would have been open. I don't think he'll ever be open to an experience like that. I don't think I will ever be open, but. Well, that book, so that book is called um, things we didn't talk about when I was a girl by Jim Vasco was out from Tin house books. It actually came out like exactly the same time as my memoir did we were like book buddies um and that book what i think was also i remember when i was reading it actually thinking to myself i feel like this book is very much in conversation with my book because it is trying to like it's trying to like put language and obviously like the opportunity to interview one's own rapist and have them be open to that process is like really specific and really like i mean i don't say lucky exactly but it's like you know a a break that most people right most people are not going to have the chance to do that and to be like can we talk about like, you know, but I feel like that book is so good because it really does. Cause then she like, you know, he's saying things to her, but then she has to go back and be like, do I take him at his word? Like what is sort of the meta narrative about mm-hmm. like him deciding to talk to me? Like how much can I trust the way that he's articulating like his memories and his choices? Like it's a really interesting, I mean, and it also, and I think ultimately what makes it so interesting is it is like, this is really complicated. And I feel like, again, not to bring it back to like desire, but everything is right. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> it makes me think about how, like in the queer community, like we, and by I say we, I mean sort of just the, the community at large loves slash needs like really simplistic narratives about certain things in order to, because they're, they're, they have a certain political benefit. So like, for example, mm. the narrative of born this way. So the idea that like right. you're born gay, it is an, it is an, it is a thing that is simply, it is. And as everyone's experience, and if you say otherwise, you're a homophobe. So like that, and I remember like thinking about, like thinking about that narrative. I was, I don't know if you've read any of Andrea Long Chu's work, but she has this, um, her essay on liking women, which is about transness as a way of affirming desire and like moving. She was like, I, I was, I wanted to be a trans woman because I wanted to be fucked by dykes mm-hmm. and like articulating this language. That's like really unusual. Like it's not the way that we talk about usually like gender, identi- gender, sexual orientation or gender identity or anything, but like, and, and it feels really, and that feels really provocative and really interesting to me in this mm-hmm. way that like, you know, and I think it's because it is a narrative that like doesn't quite fit with like everything we've been told. And it's like, I understand why like narratives like born this way, quote unquote, are like politically expedient in various ways, but also like, that doesn't mean that it's like, so it's like, yeah, maybe a simple narrative is useful for certain things. Maybe it's useful for people, but like, it's okay to say like, that doesn't quite fit with like what I am, like Mm -hmm. what I am experiencing. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, it, that, that just feels, <laughs> it feels. It feels like interesting to me, and and but I feel like some people really do. Like if you sometimes if you say like I don't think like if if was one was to say like I don't know if I was necessarily born gay, but I like people would like lose their fucking minds, right? Like there's something <laughs> really interesting about like yeah, yeah or like and I, and I don't I don't know. Well, I, try, I mean, I, I, I do say now I'm like, look, I don't know if I was, if I was born gay or whatever. 
I, all I know is that I chose not to be straight. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, if I'm going to like put it in that way, it's like, I chose against that bullshit. Like I'm not doing that because plenty, I mean, I know plenty of gay men or men who have sex with men who could at some point identify as gays if they want to married with kids and like staying in that marriage until the grave. You know what I mean? Like I've had sex with some of those guys. So like, you know, like, um, and so I, I, I think, I'm, you know, the political expediency thing is like, I don't have any desire for political expediency at all. Like it, it, when it's a trade-off, like it's a sort of weird tempered accelerationism where people are like, well, we just do this thing. This is the tactic. This will get us what we want, like as quickly as possible. And I'm like, but will it like really get us what we want or do we need or, or is it just going to fuck us over, like, uh, eventually in some other way? Is it going to be seized? Like, can we think about that? But, I, I mean, I understand, like, on-the-ground tactics are needed, like, when there's an urgent situation and when, when you have something going on. However, this complicated picture, as we're talking about now and just sort of in our own ways showing again and again, is, like, it, th- there's such a silencing like of all the silencing that happened to so many people, the silencing of the complicated picture is <laughs> always on. And from some of the best, most encouraging, loving, politically right people, still the silencing of the complicated narrative is happening. Um, I'm thinking about that like desire thing you said, where, you know, a few years into doing porn, I started getting fan mail from lesbians. And I was like, what is this? You know, what, what's happening here and sort of realizing like people aren't, you know, like what, when people think about desire, they're not looking for the thing that they want to do all the time. They're looking for a cue that, a, that gives something to them, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so I think that that's another sort of version of it. I don't know why I brought that up, except to be like, look, lesbians like my porn, Carmen. Lesbian, I don't know. <laughs> Because I remember when, what was that movie? The kids are all right. Do you remember when that movie yeah, came out? Yeah. And there was a scene where this, the lesbian couple was watching, was watching. Yes, gay porn. Yes. And I remember people freaked out. People got really mad. And mm-hmm. I was like, that doesn't seem that unusual to me. I was like, that, I mean, mm-hmm. I was like, but people were like, how dare they suggest? How dare they? I was like, mm-hmm. I don't think it's as unusual as you, as you're mm-hmm. insinuating. Like, you know, like there's all kinds of reasons I can imagine why that would be interesting. And like, yeah, like I feel like people just get really, I don't know. And it's, and there's just like hostility to like imagining something that like, I don't know. I don't even know. Everything I'm going <laughs> to say is really mean, but like, I just like, huh. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. The human experience is like bizarre and varied and like interesting and, you know, yeah. Well, I uh, like so, honor that and respect that. I don't know. <laughs> well, I think it just brings me to sort of, um, yeah, one of the, what, maybe one of the last things I want to talk about with you is like the, this, these obstacles in your stories. Um, maybe, maybe you would think of them as obstacles. Um, <laughs> I do, but in a good way, you know, the husband's stitch is probably the easiest one to point to where, you have like, if you're reading this out loud, do this, do this, do this, do this, right? As in the story. And, you know, as as I read it, I remember just thinking like, what the, what the fuck? Like, why are these here? I don't know why they're showing up, but it was a good provocation, right? And um, 
and I had to sort of, I had to sort of consider it, but I think that maybe that's part of, you know, I, I can sort of view it that way. Like maybe there's a cue or a prompt there. That's like, this is just going to evoke something new in you. So if you're reading the straight narrative and you hit this, it's going to like, it's going to turn you away from the straight narrative. It's like, gosh, I would keep bringing up Kelly Link, but there's this in her story, monsters about these kids who are at camp and they're all just sort of talking about a monster. And then the monster finally appears from the woods. And rather than jumping right into like all the action with the monster, she turns it right away. And it's like, you can learn a lot of things at camp. You can learn how to make an arrowhead out of a stone. You can learn how to kick the kid on the top bunk. You can learn this, you can learn this, you can learn this. And then she goes back into the action. And it's such a jarring thing to do. And I don't exactly know what it does to me. I don't know how, but it, it re it recreates the feeling of the story or not recreates it. It uh, transforms what would be happening in the story for me normally, if that weren't there. So again, I think there's this thing where it's like, you're expecting any kind of realism, even from this bizarro story with someone wearing a ribbon around their (laughs) throat through the whole thing. But, but you're not, if you're expecting that, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna mess with you. Just like if you're expecting lesbians only watch lesbians having sex with other lesbians in porn, I'm actually going to throw this thing into the mix. That's going to (laughs) shock you a little bit. So there is this demand of the normal course of the desire of the story that, I mean, it is, there are a lot of other writers that do this kind of thing. You know, I think people might think of French writers a a, a lot when when they think of this, but there are a lot of writers that do this. And so that you throw it in. So I'm just wondering Maybe we can talk about that as we close out the um, the refusal of the of the smoothness of the reader's experience. Yeah, well, I, I wonder if it has to do has to do with like it's a reminder that you're reading a story. Like I feel like we value in a lot of ways, and I guess I don't know who the we is in that sentence, but like people <laughs> often value like, getting lost in a story or like the boundary between you and the story is, is sort of non-existent, which I, I can be really interesting, but I think there's also something really interesting about someone. It's like, there's a narrator grabbing your face and being like, look over here look over here. Do you understand? Like, and that's like a whole different kind of experience. And, and it's like, it's like a sudden realization that you are in, you know, it's like, it's like, it's like Fleabag turning at the, turning toward the camera, you know, like, like it's this moment of like, rupture of fourth wall breaking of of awareness that suddenly is brings you into the the artifice of the thing Mm -hmm. um but also showing you that like that does not you don't you don't lose the power of the story by having that 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 that, like there's something about that and i feel like it has to do with like i don't know in horror how like part of the reason people love horror you know, also we discuss all kinds of reasons, but also I think a reason is that it's like a safe way. It's like going on a roller coaster. It's like a safe way of having an experience that's very like, you know, adrenaline inducing, but also like it's in this sort of safe or like always new mom goes to a horror movie. It's like, you're, you're ultimately you're safe and you know, you're safe. Um, you're just watching a movie or you're just on a roller coaster. And, and so I feel like there's something about that, that then that like you, you it like reminds you that like you are in this, that you're in this spell that someone has created for you, which I think is also like, 
it also makes you think about the artist. Like it makes you think about the writer. It like gives you a sense of like who's at the wheel of the thing that you're on the ride that you're on, which is also a like, really weird feeling. I think to suddenly be aware that there's like some organizing intelligence directing you in some way. I mean, that's like kind of like the definition of the uncanny, right? This idea that like, you're suddenly aware that there's like a presence that's like generating patterns and is like orchestrating the dream that you're in. Right. And that's just like, you know, and maybe you call that God or maybe you call that there's an author writing the story and suddenly you're like aware of it. And I think there's something very like strange and magical about that. Even more strange and magical than just getting lost in a story and just like being there and then coming out at the end. Like, I feel like, which again, I mean, both, both are valuable in their own way, but I like, I like the version that you're talking about. Like I, I love, I love it when it, I mean, to go back to Fleabag, like, I mean, I think one of the reasons that Fleabag was so magical was not just the wall breaking, which obviously was like fun, but like then the moments where suddenly this one man, I don't know if you saw Fleabag or not, but like, you know, the, oh, so like, she's <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. I mean, I know no, the gist of it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so she's constantly just sort of like turning to the camera and like commenting sort of on a side, you know, like Zach like, Morris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, but then what, what, what really m- makes that crackle, and like that's just like, you know, it's like a device, it's fine, it's cute, but then like as she falls in love with this with the hot with hot priest, um, he notices when she does it. So she does it, and no normally no one is paying attention, and she just enters back into the conversation, but he goes, Where'd you go just now? Mm. You just mm. went somewhere for a second. Uh, and it's like uh-huh. he can see that she's like departing the narrative mm. even though he doesn't see her physically doing it but he like understands that she's doing it and she's like very like sort of taken aback by being seen by this person and it's like just get talking about it gives me chills because it's just this moment you're just like oh that's so fucking smart mm. like mm-hmm. that's so smart um and really like elevates it from just like you know just a little device to like something that's like kind of on this like almost existential level that's like really sort of devastating um yeah that's that's really that's really profound no i mean i've been wanting to watch it forever and i love killing eve and i know that she wrote both series so i do want i do want to watch it but i i think like yeah that that's really interesting the idea that somebody would notice the bridge between worlds there. So it's not just that there's a bridge between worlds, but that somebody would notice it. Um, yeah, I was thinking about, you know, this, this awareness thing. So I love when I watch a movie and the actors are doing theater acting in a movie. It doesn't happen very often. There are some actors that do it. Like Sigourney Weaver does it in almost all her movies, which is really amazing. But like where it's just this really pronounced like style of acting or like if you watch Rosemary's Baby, like they're doing theater acting in that movie. And it's so, oh gosh, it's so shocking in, in that film to me. But I think it points more like, I just love melodrama. Like I love, and it, it comes across as melodrama when people do that. But let me go through this crazy straw and see if I can get to what, what, I, <laughs> what the question is and what I want to say about what you said, where like, I'm thinking about, I don't know if you've ever seen the bitter tears of Petra von Kant, the Rainer Werner Fassbinder movie. Well, all his movies are extremely melodramatic. I mean, it is, maybe not all of them. Yeah, all of them, I think, that I've seen. I've seen quite a bit. And this one is about, basically, these three women who are in this bizarro relationship. There's a fashion designer, there's her muse, and there's her assistant. And this sort of heartbreak happens. I don't want to spoil the movie for you, because it is one of the best movies ever made, I think. And 
one of the women is like heartbroken and she thinks her lover is going to be calling her on the phone. And so the phone rings and she's like, hello. And it's not her lover, but that'll happen five times. Like, like a phone will ring and she'll answer it and like, hello, is it you? And it's not. And then she'll, and it'll happen again and again and again. And it's so pronounced and all the actions and everything is it. All the costumes are very lavish and everything. And so it's a way of saying, you're watching a movie. Hello, you're watching a movie. And, but then over time, melodrama became almost normalized in films so that you couldn't quite tell in the same way that jump cuts, you know, before Godard and like new wave cinema in France, you didn't really see these kinds of jump cuts like quite so much in movies. And now we just take them for granted. They're not like device, you know? And so at a certain point, someone asked Fassbender, they were like, that movie is so misogynistic. Like the way the women treat each other is horrible. Now, Fassbender probably was a misogynist, but <laughs> his response was so profound. He said, how do you know they're women? And it was just like, you're trying to literalize the story that I presented to you, but it's not a literal thing. You don't even know that these are supposed to represent people, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think it's, it's something like that. Like these kinds of devices are like, not only don't forget that it's a <laughs> don't forget there's a story don't forget that nothing is what it seems you know mm -hmm. don't forget that these are symbols on a page like what the fuck are you doing you know <laughs> like to me that's so profound this is this is amazing this is like blowing my mind did you ever see um Lars von Trier's Dogville with Nicole mm -hmm. I just keep thinking about I remember that, I mean I saw it First of all, I saw Lars von Trier way too young. I, was, <laughs> I, was I think everybody sees Lars von Trier way too young, no Probably. matter what I mean, age. And I, and I think, speaking of speaking of fucking misogynists, like he's like a misogynist <laughs> whose work I really love. It's very complicated, but um, but yeah, like I remember the first time I ever saw Dogville and was like, and you know, and I was maybe like I don't know twenty, like I or mm. no younger than that, maybe like eight, whenever I can. And I was like, I I was like. And I kept like just like being like, how could anyone with a straight face be in this movie? Where like so so for those of you who are listening who can't who haven't seen it, mm -hmm. this it's just a I don't know what you can call that. It's like the stage is like a bare stage with mm -hmm. tape on it to indicate buildings, and the whole thing is just being acted out in like a empty an empty room. And, mm -hmm. and, and so like, and I remember like, I was talking to like my partners about this and I was like, I was like, God, I couldn't even, I wouldn't even know how to drink a fake glass of water, like much less like move through a scene that's supposed to be there. Like mm -hmm. I would never be able to do that in 10 million years. Like that's very uh, skillful, but it's like the whole time it's like something with the artifice of like, it's like nothing is anything like visually this, the nothing, nothing is happening. And so you can sort of like focus on this, like, but there's a sense of like artificiality to that. Like is really interesting and it like serves the story in this like very interesting way. I don't know, but yeah, no, I mm. love that. I mean, I feel like, right. It's like, it's like, I feel like this, I mean, for me, like what really tickles me sort of my brain is like when something is just like moving between like these modes of telling and like, there is this sort of promiscuousness of like genre and form mm. and voice. And I, there's something about that that's just so satisfying to me. Um, and, you know, I also do love like realism. Like I, you know, I love other modes of telling, but for some reason that mode is just like, it really just like scratches the itch that I have. And mm -hmm. I just find it so satisfying. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, for, for as being someone who is like in porn for almost 10 years, it's like that for me was one of the most exciting things about it. It was like, yeah, I went and I did that for eight hours today. And like, you're getting this like 
at, at the time there were like 40 minute scenes, which also now just seems like way too long, but it's like, you're getting these 40 minute scenes and you think that that's real. And you also know that it's not real because you know that this is Connor Habib being the construction worker. And you're watching the scene because it was Connor Habib because you watched the blah, blah, blah. And you're watching it for this performer, not because this, I mean, some people might watch it because they want it. Actually, I don't think I ever did a construction worker, a mechanic scene, <laughs> but they want, they, they like, maybe some people like mechanic scenes. So that's why they're watching it. But, a lot of people are watching it for the performer. So they know that I'm in it. And it's not just like watching for some other actor. It's like you're watching because you want to fuck. And you also are having a sexually like <laughs> generative experience watching the scene. And like, so there are all these levels of like fakery and like real and realness, all these removes and closeness and an intimacy. So it's just like, I pull you in and I cast you out. I put myself in and I remove myself. I mean, of course this sounds very sexual. Say it, <laughs> say, it, say it out loud. This is very heteronormatively sexual, but it's like, I think that that's that again. Yeah. I mean, everything we're, everything we're talking about is just like, this has just all been like desire and repulsion. Yeah. And right. Yeah. Of that episode. yeah. I mean, I think that that, and I think that it's interesting because porn is a way, I think we're doing that all the time with art, but like porn is like so explicitly mm-hmm. that phenomenon of like this weird marriage of like desire and access and like these levels of realism that exist. And like you mm-hmm. said, like, like why are you watching it? Cause it's like the scenario is provocative or like mm-hmm. the sort of configuration of performers or is it the, is it like one person in particular or is it like, it's a fantasy or could it become a fan? Like, there's just something that's about like, that's like so interesting. Um, <laughs> I mean, and I, it kind of reminds me, I mean, I promise this is related, but like of like law and order. <laughs> so like, I've been, I've been rewatching old. It, old it will, that movies. will come up in every conversation. You I know. Have on the podcast. <laughs> 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 but, like, I, I watch because I've been watching in COVID, a lot of old law and order and old law and order mm-hmm. SVU. And like a thing that happens in that show that you only would notice, you would not notice if you were watching it sporadically, but you would notice if you were like mainlining like, you know, eight of them a day or whatever, is that actors come back as other characters. So like mm-hmm. almost every major like DA character uh, appears uh-huh, uh-huh. appears in an early season as a as a, a criminal or like a suspect or a witness or uh-huh. something. And then it's like, then they come back later and they're like the same person, but a different character. So you're like, mm. weren't you like the, you know, like there was one that was like, you were like the, the, the suspect sister in like episode five of season three or whatever. And now you're like a detective or like you're like, you were a witness. And it's like weird because it's like, you're meant to just acknowledge like they're two separate characters, but like it's, to me, it feels like very surreal. Like it's like, but this is like the same person. And it's like, it's not like they're, they've changed, they've changed their life around and now they're a DA. It's like, they're a different person, but it's the same actor and you recognize them as the same actor. And it's super weird. And there's, no, there's like a, it's like a weird commentary on like the exterior of the world of the show. And actually also reminds me of Star Trek. Totally. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking of Star Trek and, when you're saying that. Yeah. Well, because also because Star Trek does that as well. And then also in Star Trek, like I always like whenever Guinan shows up or next generation, like yeah. I watched Next Generation as a kid and I loved it. And like, the thing about Guinan that's so funny is that like the story behind like Whoopi Goldberg, I don't know if you know this story, but like why she was on Star Trek, but apparently she was like a huge fan of Star Trek. And she was like, had her agent. She's like, 
I want to be on Star Trek, but like not all the time because I'm very busy. So like, can we figure out a, a character for me to be that shows up occasionally? So she becomes Guinan. So whenever you see Guinan on Star Trek, it's like a time when Whoopi Goldberg had a break from like whatever else other stuff she was doing. And she was just on the show that she fucking loved and that she wanted to be a character on. <laughs> and so it's like, you're seeing a character, but you're also seeing this like, exterior like there's like this sense of like the exterior of the show that you're like reaching beyond the bounds of it which i find just so again, <laughs> and so interesting and, and, and you couldn't help because wasn't that when sister act came out so she was like really huge at that time i think too I think, so it's like you yeah. couldn't help but be like that's whoopi goldberg like right. it was you know it and we could be whoopi goldberg on the enterprise when relatively everybody else on that show felt like an unknown when it appeared right. i mean there were some people that you would see here for, there, but well i guess and i guess um uh patrick stewart came from came from plays right sure from, sure but you wouldn't yeah. i mean you wouldn't like re- you know by Whoopi default Whoopi, Whoopi, your point is totally about where you're like right. you're like, Whoopi goldberg you're like that's Whoopi goldberg I right like exactly on law and order when you see they're like if you recognize an actor they're gonna be the guilty they're gonna be the criminal because like because like, <laughs> they're not gonna like, they're not gonna stay on the show Right. Or, Fran Le- like, or Fran Lebowitz, who will be the judge. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. Oh my God. My partner, one of my partners did not realize for it. And like walked in and was like, is that Fran Lebowitz? And I was like, it is occasionally. Fran Lebowitz is just, I don't know the story, but occasionally she's just a judge and she's on it for like 30 seconds. And it's very funny. Um, or like, I don't know, there was an episode that I rewatched an SVU episode with Robin Williams. And I was like, oh. I was like, like, and this was like, yeah, like, this is Robin Williams, like famous Robin Williams, who just, I just decided to be on an episode and he's like being very Robin. He's very, it's very much his character from, um, oh, what was that show? One Hour Photo. Did you ever see that movie? One Hour Photo. Mm-hmm. It, it's like very much, to, imagine if his character from One Hour Photo was then transplanted into like, <laughs> as you, and like, yeah. it's just so weird. You're like, he was very famous when this came out. Like, I, I can't. Maybe he had to remodel his bathroom or something, and he was like, "I just need some money." So I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the story is, but like, yeah, there's something about that that I feel like is so funny, fun, and funny. Um, so listen, I, I think we could just keep going and going and going, but we're not. <laughs> we're we're going to have to do that some other time. I would love to talk with you for hours more. So I hope you'll be back on the show um, sometime so we can just keep going down these um, multiple rabbit holes uh, together. I really appreciate talking with you. Carmen Maria Machado. Oh, it's an honor to be here. And yeah, I also, I also look forward to being back. I, I can't wait to talk about everything. Everything. <laughs> everything. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. <laughs>